I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3, Post Media's Canadian Current Affairs podcast. On this week's episode, a Turkish drug trafficker gunned down in Dubai, two Canadians pulled the trigger but are later found dead back home. We look at what may have led two BC gangsters into a global murder plot, and what information cops were keeping from the public. It's Thursday, August 2nd. Kim Bolin is a crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun and Province. So, Kim, take us back to May 2016 in Dubai. Well, there was a targeted hit of a fellow who was born in Iran but had uh, Turkish citizenship. Uh, he was a high roller. He was in this very luxurious neighborhood of you know, big towers. He was in a luxury vehicle, and he was shot to death by these hitmen. Now, the newspapers there in Dubai don't reveal a lot of information. At first, his name wasn't out at all, but some Turkish journalists soon identified him as this international drug trafficker named Seton Coach. And uh, what I was able to dig out was that the suspects in this hit were two young Canadian drug dealers from right here in BC. So you have two young drug traffickers from BC somehow getting tied up in an international drug hit on a Turkish drug trafficker. How did that bit of information come about? Well, I mean, it it was like a movie, uh, this story, for sure. I was able to track it because I had been doing some research. You know, I cover kind of gangs and organized crime here and on a group called the Brothers Keepers. And I was writing about this kind of new group in town or, Mm -hmm. you know, emerging group, if you will. And I had been given a photo of them where they're all wearing, they have necklace tattoos with Brothers Keepers on them and, you know, kind of tracking their origins a little bit. So this photo was published in our uh, newspaper on January 31st. And lo and behold, I started getting tips from readers of my blog where I put all my stories that there's a fellow in the photo who has uh, been murdered and that he was involved in a hit in Dubai. So I'm like, really? Why wouldn't I have heard about this fellow who'd been murdered? Mm-hmm. I was given his name by the readers, and I'm you know, searching everywhere, going to police agencies. There was no record of him being killed. But you know, I know my readers, they're pretty loyal, and they're usually pretty accurate with their tips. So I ended up uh, going to a source and managed to confirm that he had in fact died, that the file was sort of sealed, And, uh, you know, because it was believed to be a homicide and a special homicide at that, and I got the date on which he died. And then I started going through newspaper clippings, media reports out of Dubai, started tracking things at the Turkish end, worked all my sources here, both in the criminal underworld and police sources as well, and managed Mm -hmm. to piece together, you know, this pretty fantastical tale of these young guys that for some unknown reason, got caught up in this international hit, and both of them were murdered within weeks of returning to British Columbia. So they're in Dubai. They are believed to have killed Seton Coach. How did they wind up back in BC? What led them back here? Well, my understanding is they were both in BC, mm-hmm. almost up to the point of this hit, which was on May 4th, 2016. One of the fellows, a Roseman Garcia Aravalo, he was posting on his Facebook locally until about April 26. So that's just within a few days of this. So my understanding was they went over there. They were there only for a couple of days. They rented a car in their own names 
they did this murder. They got into a bit of a fender bender on their way racing to the airport, returned the car, got on a plane and came back to Canada before they had been officially identified as suspects in this murder. Wow. Now, at that time, within a couple of days, you had the authorities in the United Arab Emirates giving these names over to the RCMP in Ottawa. And there was, you know, little stories uh, a couple of years ago that said a couple of Canadians are suspects in a murder in Dubai. That's it. No names, not anything about mm. where they're from. RCMP refusing to comment, as they often do in such cases. And that was it. Okay. Little pieces started falling into place for my story. But, you know, there were so many opportunities at the time for this story to have been told to everyone in Canada uh, if police had been more forthcoming with information. Now, why was Coach targeted? Coach was targeted because he was the suspect in another hit in Istanbul in September of 2014. So really, you know, this story tracks back four years at this point. And at that point in time, his rival, a fellow named Naji Zindastri, was targeted in a hit. Unfortunately, uh, his daughter, 19 years old, was the one who died uh, as she was driving with her cousin, who was also her dad's driver. So obviously Zindastri was very upset about this. Right away believed it was Coach uh, because you know they had been kind of rival traffickers in the region. Even though these people are based in Turkey, they really operate throughout sort of Eastern and Central Europe. And you know they're alleged to be major drug smugglers. Like we're not talking about kind of drug dealers running lines. They are behind you know tons and tons of heroin that mm -hmm. is being brought into Europe on ships. There had been a big seizure about two months before Zindastri's daughter was targeted and the authorities intercepted it. And the belief was that this Zindastri had tipped the DEA and that it was Coach's group who lost all the heroin. So you can see that it's a very involved and intricate story, you know, linked to all these international, international organized criminals and yet at the center of it, we have these two young guys in their 20s with very minor criminal records here in BC who get caught up in this. We'll be right back. This is Dave Breckenridge, host of 10.3 Post Media's Canadian Current Affairs podcast. The name represents Canada's 10 provinces and three territories, and each episode takes a deeper look at one of the biggest stories in the country. Our show is powered by the work of journalists and newsrooms across Canada, so be sure to support your local paper. We're available wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and more. So be sure to subscribe and leave a review. We'd love to hear what you think. You can get me on Twitter, Breckenridge, Y-E-G, or dbreckenridge at postmedia.com. Now, have you, through your reporting, been able to find any connection between the Brothers Keepers and these international drug traffickers? There is not. And, you know, as a journalist who likes to do investigative reporting, you wish that you had every answer. Mm -hmm. One thing I wasn't able to determine, officially anyway, was how and who brought these two guys into this international murder conspiracy. Now, I did interview some experts on Turkish organized crime. They said that often these organizations 
use their family connections or their old village connections from the old country, Iran, to reach out and get people involved in their business around the world. So, you know, that leaves a lot of openings for any connection they might have to someone in Canada who then recruits these people. Now, we also know here in BC that like Brothers Keepers, for example, has connections to bigger organizations, including the Hells Angels, Mm -hmm. right? So some of those bigger organizations who provide the drugs to the mid-level gangs to traffic and deal in the streets, they have those international connections. So it could well be that they were looking for eager young guys wanting to make a name for themselves. Uh, So that's another possibility. And then... um, Garcia Arevalo has a father who has a long criminal history, has been in jail for some time. You know, could the connection have come just through somebody in jail, right, who wanted to hire somebody? So there's a lot of, you know, possibilities there, but not something that, you know, I have been able to nail down 100%. And who are these two guys, these young drug dealers? How did they come about and, and wind up connected with the Brothers Keepers? Well, they both um, have records that date back uh, several years. And remember, they're only in their mid-20s. Garcia Arevalo would have been uh, 23 at the time of his death. Uh, Maggi would have been uh, 26. So, you know, very young and yet had sort of run-ins with the law, um, you know, sometimes as simple as driving without a license, prohibitions on driving, but also, you know, possession for the purpose of trafficking convictions, again, at the lower level. So they were in and out of uh, jail a little bit here and there, but nothing, you know, too serious, mm-hmm. really. However, when you're involved in the drug trade here, the way it's been for the last 10 years, there's not really any kind of independent drug traffickers or drug dealers who are just getting involved out of their basement suite and don't have connections to someone higher up. It's all run by bigger gangs or organizations now, mm-hmm. um, you know, mid-level gangs. So, you know, they would naturally align with other drug traffickers, which is what they did with the Brothers Keepers. And the Brothers Keepers is also aligned with other, you know, mid-level gangs and some higher level gangs as well. So that's the way, um, you know, our drug trade operates here in BC. Pretty well everyone is connected to one group or another. And then obviously a lot of the violence we've seen here over the last 10 years is when these groups get into conflict. Yeah. So Brothers Keepers, you you call it a mid-level gang. It's not a a large organization or compared to a group like you mentioned, the Hells Angels. Kind of where does it rank in terms of uh, gangs on the lower mainland? Well, they have been very uh, active and made a name for themselves in the last two to three years only. Uh, And, you know, they're kind of new in town from that perspective. You know, they got these tattoos. Uh, My understanding is they really recruit young people uh, by sort of taking them out on party buses or on, you know, boats, uh, you know, to, to party it up in the evening. They pay for all the drinks and suddenly these young, like honestly, like just teenagers, you know, get very enamored with the lifestyle they're being offered. And that's how they're recruiting people. So I know that, you know, police are very concerned about, you know, the way that people seem to be lining up Mm -hmm. to join with them. However, what's also happened, as is often the case, is they have split apart uh, over the last two years. And um, they're kind of feuding with each other internally. And as a result of that, we've seen some pretty uh, high-level murders here. You know, for example, one of the leaders, a fellow named Gav- Gavin or Gavinder Graywall, you know, was murdered in his rented penthouse apartment while he was out on bail in, in a manslaughter case. 
that was uh, almost a year ago now uh, that that happened. So there's been a lot of violence internally within that organization, but that is all post when these two young guys uh, were killed. Okay. So you have Garcia Aravalo, he's found shot dead in a blueberry field in Abbotsford a week after coach was killed in Dubai. And then about a month later, there's a burned out vehicle found. And at the time, there's no reports of anyone being inside said burned out vehicle. There weren't even reports of the burned out vehicle. Okay. Yeah, there was nothing. So, you know, which I, I determined from sources that the vehicle was in Agassiz, which is out at the outer edge of the Fraser Valley here. Uh, but it mustn't have been on a busy street because, you know, there there doesn't appear to have been any witnesses because you know how it works. Somebody would have called the radio station or the newspaper and said, oh, there's a burned out vehicle. And then suddenly police are sort of forced to disclose what they found, you know, as opposed to covering it up, which they have done for two years. Yeah. Now, you talk about there being internal feuding in the Brothers Keepers. Could the deaths of Garcia Aravalo and Maju be tied to that? Or is it pretty safe to say that their deaths are likely linked to the killing of Coach in Dubai? Oh, I think without a doubt, it is uh, both the deaths are related to what happened in Dubai. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, you know, I don't think some international hitmen showed up in BC to kill these two guys. I'm sure that just as they were recruited, someone else was recruited to take care of them. So was that person or those people members of their own organization? Uh, You know, I was told that when they came back, they were very cocky. Uh, you would think that they'd be nervous because, you know, their names were passed on to the RCMP and there were news reports that, you know, there were Canadian suspects in this murder. Uh, But for whatever reason, they were very cocky. Uh, They felt that they should have a bigger role to play in the Brothers Keepers, uh, that they should, um, you know, basically be making more money, have almost a leadership position. And other people in their own organization weren't happy about that. Uh, So, you know, were they taken out by people that were very close to them? Or did those people that were close to them at the very least approve of what was going to happen to them? And I would say that they would have known about it and likely approved of it at the very least. So, yeah, they weren't acting like you would expect a a contract killer to behave, you know, at least how you see it in the movies. They're, you know, they're not out telling people that they did X, Y, and Z or not. They're not behaving uh, irresponsibly. These two guys came back and, and were kind of, trying to act the role of tough guy, big man. Exactly. No, no, totally. That's it. But, you know, sadly, that is, you know, almost par for the course with a lot of people that get caught up in this lifestyle, you know, for whatever reason, they think that, you know, they're cool. Look at, you know, they're big spenders. Uh, They've got, you know, some uh, high-end merchandise because they've got these positions where they're earning a lot of money. And it all comes tumbling down very, very quickly. And, you know, I mean, if this isn't a cautionary tale for young people to not go down this path, I don't know what else is. Yeah. Now, earlier you talked about police secrecy around this case, specifically the fact that there was no record of Maju being killed, um, no record of this burned out vehicle. What can you tell me about any other obstacles that there's been on the part of RCMP or even international uh, police and trying to get this story out there? 
Well, I mean, basically, I would say that they have, you know, made a deliberate effort to keep this story hidden from the public. And I don't really understand that. You know, I suppose there are international law enforcement agencies involved, you know, stretching from Turkey to Dubai and now to Canada. But having said that, there are ways that you can disclose, you know, at least some parts of the story publicly so that Canadians know what's going on uh, without, you know, saying too much and hampering investigations in other countries. So, you know, I was fairly surprised at how little I was able to get officially from police. I did initially contact them right back in February, and I had lots of promises that I would get some cooperation uh, from them in working on this story because, you know, I, I thought it was an important story to get out to show what can happen to you if you get caught up in something uh, much bigger than yourselves, right? And uh, in the end, I ended up getting an emailed statement from police that didn't answer any of my questions, including why, in the case of Maju, they had kept his murder a secret for over two years. Now, they did confirm it, like, oh, we're looking for any help in solving these two murders. You know, so they did finally confirm it publicly, but without any details. And they're also like, you know, if any member of the public has any info, give us a call. So if you need that public help to solve two murders uh, where you don't have suspects identified, why on earth didn't you tell the public about it in the first place? And it would be hard, you know, you're looking back two years ago now, it would be hard to remember what you were saw if you don't have any information from the police about what you may have seen, you know? No, exactly, exactly. I mean, it was almost just like a flippant response because, you know, you know, who in what area saw what? Like, was there, you know, black vehicle racing down this street that someone may have seen? We don't even know where the one murder was. And the murder of Garcia Aravalo, I believe that that was only made public because he was found by a farmer in the farmer's blueberry field. So, you know, the farmer called authorities, the media got wind of it and was out there at the time. So, you know, by default, they had to confirm that one. But the other one was obviously done in a more secluded area where there weren't members of the public. And as a result, someone somewhere decided we're not going to tell the public about this. And I, I think that's fairly shocking. You know, when police investigate things like murders, they're using public resources and they should be accountable for those resources. Uh, they, you know, give us tallies at the end of the year of how many people uh, were killed that year. And we compile our lists of, you know, all the murders, which ones have been solved, which ones remain unsolved. And if you're, you know, withholding information from the public, you're, um, you know, preventing potential leads in these cases from coming forward. Uh, but you're also stopping journalists from doing our jobs, which is to inform the public to see if public resources are being spent appropriately, um, you know, to see, in essence, if there is enough accountability within these government agencies. Have you ever seen this lack of transparency on a similar case in your experience reporting where you're not even told about a homicide? There have been a couple over the years. There was another recent one that a, another Burnaby reporter uh, wrote about where it was like a domestic uh, murder. The father had been charged with killing a young child, and that was not disclosed publicly to protect like the family. And again, you know, someone's charged. Uh, these prosecutions are supposed to be public. But if we're not told about them, um, how can we do our jobs? How can we inform the public about what's going on? So uh, this one isn't, it's not 100% unique. Fortunately, it's still rare. A more common problem here, and I understand in other jurisdictions in the country, is we know about the murder, but we don't even get the name of the murder victim. Uh, and, you know, again, 
that solves uh, that presents a bunch of problems because, you know, it's not like we want the name of the murder victim so that, you know, we can be all sensational in our coverage. Like sometimes that person has uh, a history that's worth digging into to find Mm -hmm. out what exactly happened. Um, When these cases go to court, if you don't know who the murder victim is, how can witnesses come forward and potentially, you know, aid uh, the prosecutors or maybe even the defense lawyers in providing evidence of something they know because of their interaction with the victim? So it's a big problem. And uh, media are fighting it on a lot of fronts in a lot of areas. Uh, The public isn't always sympathetic because I think sometimes in Canada they think we're being rude or, you know, obnoxious if we want to dig into someone's personal tragedy. Yeah. And at least in the case of, of murders where there is a someone accused and charged, the name of the victim is usually uh, most of the time on court documents. But then you run into problems in, in other areas where there's a domestic homicide where the suspect uh, may take his or her own life. And when police don't release the name of the victim, they also don't release the name of the person who is responsible and there's no charges to look into. And this creates a whole other level of uh, secrecy that you would hope that we don't have in a system like Canada's. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, you know, again, those are very tragic cases. There's obviously a lot of, you know, other family members who are are grieving and upset and maybe want to keep it all secret. But what if there had been warning signs and the victim in a domestic case had contacted law enforcement five times, but nobody had gone out to the house? If we don't have the basic information about who is involved, we can't follow up and do those important investigations that can sometimes lead to, you know, systemic changes uh, in how domestic cases are handled, for example. So uh, very important that these things uh, are public. And it's certainly a battle I can, I will continue to fight as a journalist. And I know some of my colleagues in Edmonton, other parts of the country are doing the same thing. Excellent. Well, Kim, I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Here's what else is happening this week. Two protesters arrested at a BC site of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion have received the first jail terms imposed for defying a court injunction which ordered opponents not to disrupt construction work. The protesters were each handed seven-day jail sentences after pleading guilty to criminal contempt. In imposing the jail sentence, the BC judge said the pair could have lawfully and peacefully protested but instead chose to disobey the law in an attempt to get publicity. And after raising ire for plans to cut the size of Toronto City Council, the Ontario PC government is facing criticism for planned cuts to social programs. The Ford government is defending changes to welfare programs in a basic income pilot project, saying giving out money with no strings attached discourages people from looking for work. Social Services Minister Lisa McLeod said the basic income pilot project would be wound down and a 3% increase to social assistance payments would be halved to 10 3 is produced by Carson Jarama and Carrie Ann Sprawl. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.